Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Samuel Moyne, law and history professor at Yale University and one of the most incisive and thoughtful people I know working in the overlapping areas of political theory, human rights, and international relations. I hadn't met Sam before he agreed to participate in the Pandemic Perspectives project, but I sure felt like I had through his books. And he made, as expected, a uniquely valuable contribution. My first question is, I think, going to be a bit of a ramble, but hopefully it will launch us into uh, into a more targeted exposition of some of your views. So I read your article, The Irrelevance of the Pandemic, and there were things in there that resonated with your book, Not Enough, with respect to this idea of neoliberalism. So that's the, that's the basics of my my eventual question that I promise I will get to. So my sense of the the irrelevance of the pandemic is that the the neoliberal dogma hasn't been substantially affected by the pandemic. And in fact, for a very different reason, this pandemic, you speculate, won't leave uh, uh, any more of a lasting legacy and imprint on, on our historical consciousness than the 1918-1919 pandemic did for different reasons. And in your book, Not Enough, you critically distinguish between the invocation of the language of human rights and the concern of global inequality, remarking that to some extent, the former has become a mode to perpetuate the latter. So uh, I want to get into the question of what exactly you mean by neoliberalism and define it. But before I do, I wanted to ask you how those views have been received in general and to what extent you are finding people sympathetic to you or to what extent you are finding them antagonistic to you? So let me begin with the piece on the irrelevance of the pandemic, since it was kind of a hot take from a particular moment when the editor, whom I think you know, Paul Kahn, put together a volume. And it was written long ago and I think appeared in this last summer, so summer 2021. And the premise of the piece is that as disruptive as it must have been, the great influenza uh, at the end of World War I has not made it into histories of the 20th century. And that's shocking given that many more died in it than in World War I itself, which has been, you know, memorialized over and over. And so I wondered if our involvement in this new pandemic will turn out to be, you know, ephemeral in our memories and why that might be. And I don't know, but there's been no response to the piece because the book has, as far as I, at least I know, passed unnoticed. But it's true in the piece I take up, among other questions, this problem of so-called neoliberalism, which I had written about before the pandemic, largely to try to understand 
the relation of the rise of human rights since the 1970s to it. So you asked for a definition. I don't hold myself out as a kind of scholar or theorist of neoliberalism. In my book, Not Enough, I'm just trying to take that as a given and then relate human rights to it. But it's seen as a movement in thought and later policy that emphasize the institutionalization and protection of free markets against a variety of other forces, most of all, a particular kind of state that would go beyond that kind of institutionalization and protection, and especially governmental authority that would transcend the state as some in the global South proposed in the 1960s and 70s. And it was crucial that neoliberalism worked at national levels, like in Chile after the coup there in 1973, or in the UK and the US after Thatcher and Reagan took power. But from the beginning, it, it saw the global as a space for institutionalizing and protecting markets, things like investment and trade against challenge by states which were easier for critics of the market to take over than the the kind of global governance. And so that's kind of what I see as at stake in thinking about neoliberalism. And then there are these multiple questions that follow out. One is, do human rights challenge neoliberalism? And another is, does the pandemic sound the death knell of it or perpetuate it? On the first, you know, I've gotten a lot of pushback for claiming you know, moderately, that human rights aren't to blame for the coming of or the stabilization of neoliberalism, but didn't challenge it either. And so kind of coexist comfortably with it, in particular, because human rights are about building floors of protection at most when they intersect distributional ethics and, and politics, where neoliberalism has been about the promotion of inequality and unequal power. On the pandemic, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the rich got richer and there's so many good journalistic stories about how the rich in in pretty much every country have benefited substantially extending their gains over the rest during the pandemic and then we can focus on the differential response of different states in kind of helping those worst off. But the general point about neoliberalism I'm concerned about is in both the human rights book and in thinking about the pandemic is that sometimes the worst off can be made better off even as the rich win. That's like the distributional signature of our time. And I think it's at the core of my thinking about why human rights aren't enough, and why the pandemic could end up irrelevant. So there's this issue, or at least the way I would frame it, is this question about the priority of sufficiency rather than a move towards equality. Right. I mean, these are not my words. These are obviously your words, but these are the concepts that are are being used. Rather than just move towards a, a, a situation where we can have a floor, as you say, and say X is the minimum basic requirement that we should all be motivated to ensure that yep. all inhabitants of 
whatever the domain, whether it's planet yeah. Earth or the, whether it's our region or, 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 or yeah. whatsoever have, is a very different conceptual idiom than saying we should move towards a society where we minimize the gap between the very wealthy and the not so wealthy. Right. So the reason I asked you for a definition, and I, I immediately when that word came out of my mouth, I thought that that was an inappropriate word because, of course, if you ask an academic for a definition and you're making people think, oh, God, now I have to define something and someone's going to attack it because any definition I give is going to be too narrow or too broad or too X or too Y. So you answered the, the, the appropriate question, which was, let's describe what we're talking about because uh, otherwise we're just in this game of throwing jargon around and we don't have a, a clear sense of things. So, uh, so apologies for the question, but you, nonetheless, you, you, I think you tackled it very well. But let, let me uh, ramble on a little bit because sure. I, I, as somebody who is not uh, an expert in this domain, nor do I pretend to be, have often had real difficulties with some of these ideas. Okay. So one idea is this idea uh, of, of free markets. So when I hear neoliberalism, I, I understand the idea that there is a group of people who are committed to the idea that there should be no ceiling whatsoever on the wealthy. And in fact, I think many of these individuals believe that inequality is inherently a good thing. And I think, I mean, to be very, very concrete, there is a political party uh, in your country, the Republican Party, that at least to my reckoning, has spent the last 40 years uh, single-mindedly dedicated to lowering the tax rates on incredibly wealthy individuals. And you can chart the, the, the rise of neoliberalism and you can mention specific names of people at different epochs. But I mean, that's a continuous trend Correct. that has happened in a major political party Correct. well before. You know, anyway, so, so that's, that to me is representative of, uh, perhaps it's too grandiose a word, but a philosophical view or an outlook that somehow, whether you call it trickle-down economics or neoliberalism or whatever, that a, that a rising tide will somehow raise all boats yep. and there should be no attempt made in any way to encourage, let alone legislate, policies that would, that would tend towards a narrowing of the gap between the rich and the poor. Right. And to me, that philosophy is quite different than or at least potentially different, at least to my mind, there's some confusion between that and the idea of free markets. Mm -hmm. So to me, I, I, I've long been a subscriber of, uh, or, or subscriber to, in fact, The Economist magazine, yeah. which has been consistently advocating the importance of free markets. And the justification for free unfettered markets in that perspective, as I understand it, is often explicitly invoked as this is the best way to actually encourage uh, prosperity in the poor. Right. So legitimate access to markets will, in fact, be uh, the best mechanism for the impoverished to get out of poverty. And what I often see by people who are adopting the guise of neoliberalism or Republican politicians or sure. what have you, they're all kind of conflated in my mind, sure. is I see, I see overt protectionism measures that are often invoked. Yeah. I see policies that are more mercantilist in nature right. that are actually a distortion of the market. I don't think they say that explicitly, but very often they might say that they believe in free markets, but that winds up being hugely deleterious to 
to poor countries, to poor regions, and so forth. And it's not just in the United States. You see the same thing in you know, protectionist measures in the European Union and common agricultural policies and butter mountains and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Again, I'm not an expert in this, but sure. my, my sense is that th- there's a bit of a confusion to me. To me, markets... Okay, so I'm not. I'm not. I, I promised that I wouldn't was going to be incoherent, and I've lived up to my promise. But my, no, no, it's my, very clear. It's confusing to me because I think it's not as if these people actually, in a non-hypocritical way, represent markets, free markets, legitimately free, unfettered markets, with the end result of alleviating poverty and raising the poor out of their desperate conditions and giving them the tools to be able to equip themselves. In fact, it seems like it's a perpetuation of inequality. So I subscribe, so far as I can understand it and, 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 and interpret it, I subscribe to The Economist, the magazine's belief, not to say that they're God or anything like that, but that philosophical view of liberalism strikes me as coherent and reasonable. And very often I see people acting in the name of what I interpret to be neoliberalism as actually contrary to that view through mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. measures. So mm-hmm. so am I completely wrong or how would you interpret my, my perception of what's going on? No, I, th- I think you're right. Um, so I just want to go back because I don't believe I use the word free in my definition of neoliberalism. And to the contrary, I said that it's based on the priority of institutionalizing and protecting markets. And that gives a role to the state or global governance, if we're at that level, to do a lot. And most of the writing about neoliberalism is it's not so much about the mere ideology of, of market activity in Friedrich Hayek or whomever as on the empowerment of the state and you know at the global level various kind of regimes like the world trade organization to operate and impose political power and so i think we do have to make room at the heart of this for the view that decentralized individuals transacting is going to lead to superior outcomes than any planner, you know, trying to aggregate information and design a better outcome. I mean, that was like the the very heart of Hayek's view, but it didn't exclude a role for states. And indeed, in the road to serfdom, Hayek made room for aspects of the welfare state including a floor of, of welfare protection. And, you know, he had no problem with the National Health Service, which was emerging at that time. And the object of his condemnation was the planning state, not the welfare state. Now, you know, you also point out that the view is that everyone's better off under this plan. And I think there's something to it. As I said, the distributional signature of our time is that the poor are better off. And there's truth in the fact that a rising tide raises all boats. It's happened most graphically in China, which has saved more humans over 700 million from so-called extreme poverty than any agent in world history and in an extraordinarily brief time, even as it's also accelerated its own domestic 
income inequality more rapidly than any state. So it's like a neoliberal like utopia in certain ways, even though it's formally a communist regime. And the same has happened in various other states where poverty has been remediated before the pandemic and inequality has has increased. And it's very hard to face down that argument morally. And in my work, I have not concentrated on providing any kind of knockdown response to neoliberal views. Rather, I just you know want to ask what human rights has to do with the fact that they're so broadly accepted and what happened to the challengers to neoliberalism. Well, one answer is that those challengers did worse, just as neoliberals insisted. But I want to hold out room for some new challenger to come along and say, well, we can get the benefit for the worst off without tolerating the increases in inequality that neoliberals justify. And it may require a planning state or at least some kind of state doing more than institutionalizing and protecting markets. But I'm the last person who's claimed that we know how to design such a state. I do think we have to give up the dogma that Hayek introduced that the planning state, insofar as it, it tries to arrange social justice, will always be inferior in its results to the neoliberal plan. But that would have to be demonstrated and it would have to succeed. But for any of that to happen, we have to actually have some places where it's being tried. Yeah. Um, So perhaps it would help if I was a little bit clearer. Let let me give some responses to to some of your work that I've read uh, that I I very much enjoyed and some of the things that, that are that's bothering me. So the idea that we should be bearing in mind the importance of a more equal society or a less unequal society is a view that I subscribe to very deeply. Mm-hmm. I think we have been moving precipitously and deleteriously in a very unequal direction over the last few decades. And I think that is against all of our long-term interests. It's even against you know, your super billionaire's long-term interest, because if we find ourselves on a planet which is not inhabitable, or at least not inhabitable to the extent that it can uh, it can permit a large-scale human flourishing, then that's not really in anybody's interest. So, uh, and, and I think that those things are not unrelated. And I'm certainly against state planning, but I do believe that there is a role for the state in regulating various issues and not everything should be left up to the to the free market. I think when we're dealing okay. with issues of health and human welfare and so forth, it's it's necessary for the state to actually be involved. And in fact, if you don't have the state as an actor in these particular areas, then you will necessarily have an increase, a vast increase in inequality. So uh, and it was very interesting to me in in your book, Not Enough, that you were you were saying that the International Declaration of Human Rights was not so much this shining pillar that influenced all sorts of states to radically change what they were doing, but was rather a consolidation of movements that had already been happening towards the generation of the welfare state, and as such was largely ignored for for a significant period of time. 
so I promised you a ramble, and a ramble is what you got. But what, what bothers me is the notion of hypocrisy. And the reason I asked for a definition, which again, I recanted and, and, and mm-hmm. so forth, but the thing that drives me completely crazy is I don't know what the hell we're talking about. So I have people that are supposedly, that are acting in the name of free markets, but are imposing conditions where they are basically making it harder for individuals who live in right. different parts of the world to bring their goods to market and thus sure. uh, raise themselves out of poverty. I listen to people who are supposedly advocates for a particular view of free trade who are arguing that we should embark upon a trade war against a particular country and we should bring back mining and we should uh, we should make sure that uh, that these 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 towns that have uh, that are dying because their steel mill has uh, all right. of a sudden uh, become superfluous or at least not competitive against other countries in the world that they are going to promise to give those people back their minds and give those people back their jobs. It seems blatantly hypocritical. And so I don't even know what these people are representing anymore. The only thing they seem to be representing is greater inequality, greater elite capture by people who have tremendous amounts of money and less ability to flourish for, for for the average individuals, which is presumably largely the whole point of political structures to begin with, one would, one would imagine. Right. So it's that level of hypocrisy that, that particularly bothers me. Okay. Um, what this has to do with the, 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 the pandemic is, is, is not entirely clear to me. But let's, let's return to your book, Not Enough, because to me, what was very illuminating about that was this idea that, as I understood it, there is a large tranche of people that support this agenda that I was just delineating, that are just that are interested in inequality for the sake of inequality and for those who benefit from that inequality. And they are somehow able to hide behind or use the language of human rights as a way to stop people from rigorously investigating the merits of potentially embarking on a more equal policy. And, and that struck me as very interesting, and I had certainly not thought of things that way. And and I guess it's that in particular that I was thinking of when I was asking you how those views had been received. So so I'm coming to a question you'll be gratified to know. The first question is, is that a reasonable synopsis of at least part of what it is that you are expressing? And the second is, if it is, what did people have to say to that? So just as a prefatory matter, let me respond to kind of your framing. I totally think you can argue, just as in the old days people argued that, you know, Marxism didn't fail in the Soviet Union, it wasn't tried, that neoliberalism hasn't yet been tried. Right. And that seems to be your perspective. And of course, the rise of Donald Trump and the exacerbation of American protectionism since it goes much further back in his rhetoric of open trade war with China seems to flout you know neoliberal principle not advance it even if he was doing other things like cutting taxes and I do think we need to look as as people like Quinn Slobodian have into Robert Lightseer the US trade representative and like what was actually being done in the various bilateral trade arrangements that the Trump administration pursued, because maybe they're neoliberal in fact, even if not in in representation. But regardless, you can always make that argument 
I think we've seen, if not neoliberalism, then the neoliberalization of, of governance in the sense that it's a continuum between planning and freedom. And we've seen states since the 70s move substantially down it. And you can always say, well, we really can't make a judgment until we're all the way there. But the trouble is we need to make a judgment now. And we can see these emergent phenomena. That's why I close the book with like, you know, what will it be like once there's full, full on neoliberalism and will human rights contest it? So that can provide a bridge to finally the, the questions you asked. Um, I think it's a good representation. I want to make sure it's not, let's say, complicitous and conspiratorial right, right, in the way it's, it's framed. So it's rather, I think, something like parallel play that human rights activists and law are, are let's say, merely, which is unfair since it's a heroic activity working on this floor of protection. Right. They're not challenging those who are obliterating the ceiling on inequality. And if we ask, you know, how could they survive neoliberalism? Well, it's because they don't threaten the project. And that's less judgmental of you than many would take, like Marxists. But in the reception of the book, it's judgmental enough to raise a lot of hackles. And so there have been two main responses, one more plausible and one less plausible. The more plausible one is to say, well, human rights were never supposed to be about our general moral obligations, just the selective priorities. And it just said, here are some things that are non-negotiable, like free speech or the right to health. And it's not that other things don't matter, but that human rights law and movements are about the non-negotiable. And then you negotiate over the rest or fight for it. Or if you want to have less inequality, feel free. It's just not the problem that human rights are intended to solve. And I think that's a great answer. It's just that we still have to have something to say about the fact that this concern about the floor becomes morally central to humanity in the age that the rich are winning. And so it's not an adequate defense to me to say, well, that's not our fault. And feel free to remedy that problem because we're talking about an ideological laboratory. We've got to have something to say about the rise of sufficiency and the death of equality. The less plausible answer is that human rights already are or can be egalitarian, which seems, I think, absurd if it's a claim about their current focus and and effect, and not very plausible if it's about their future significance, because it just seems amazing that a, a movement that has done so badly, even with what they currently say is non-negotiable, like free speech, torture, housing, could actually like face down galloping inequality and, and remedy it. It doesn't surprise me. And people misinterpret all sorts of things. I can imagine, I don't know, and it's one of the reasons I asked the question, I can imagine that people might take the position that that you are casting aspersions on people who are involved in protecting and promoting right. human rights, which of course is not what you're doing. Or, uh, as you were alluding to, implying that those who 
are pursuing a rigorously unequal agenda are deliberately using human rights as a cover or have, have if you want to be completely paranoid, have developed the entire human rights platform as a way of pursuing their sure. own ag- agenda, a Trojan sure. horse or something like that, which sure. is also complete nonsense. Sure. And, and, and people and argue you, that though. So, <laughs> so right. But you, there, there you clearly didn't say that. Yeah. Right. But that, that's, that's just not willing to have an interesting, intelligent, open discussion, right? I mean, there are people who, that argue all sorts of things. And it's, it's also, of course, not your view that human rights are unimportant or that, um, or that they shouldn't be pursued or that the people, I mean, the question of whether or not they're, they're doing that within its own criterion well enough is a completely separate issue that has to be addressed separately. Mm-hmm. It's just you're pointing out that, first of all, these are two different things. Yes. And secondly, those who are dedicated to promoting the, the values, shall we say, of inequality are very happy to let the conversation stop, as it were, at the notion of human rights, because it doesn't threaten them or their Correct. particular agenda. And they have a sense where they can feel, oh, yes, I'm a good global citizen because, because of this and their whole uh, mandate, which is at some level, I would argue, deeply immoral, is not being threatened. And that, that's my per- takeaway of, of, yeah, of what it is that a, you're That's doing. completely accurate. So I want to get I want to get to this notion of of, of uh, health as a human right. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that the pandemic has made people, at least some people, appreciate that what we mean by human rights. Typically, when we think of human rights, we think of uh, people being immune to, or at least protected from torture, and having at least a, some level of uh, of dignity and ability to feed themselves, or what have you. But the idea that they should be protected from ravaging contagions is not usually something that uh, people think about when they think of human rights. So so in your judgment, to what extent do you think that may change or at least be brought into uh, a wider level of awareness as a result of this pandemic? Well, I think it had already been changing and, and it's going to enjoy a quantum leap, I think, which doesn't mean it's going to emerge uncontested on the other side of the pandemic. It, I think it will just gain more traction. So just to go back, the right to health care is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And as I emphasize in the book, that was intended to be a charter for the new model welfare states that were emergent in the middle of the 20th century, all of which made health provision central. And, you know, the National Health Service, again, can be like an iconic example, but it's as of that date that all the constitutions essentially, and, and especially after the Cold War, like the South African constitution, provide a right to at least access to health care. And international law, again, for whatever it's worth, goes further because, again, in the 1940s, the World Health Organization, now sort of notorious for its mismanagement of the pandemic, founded in the 1940s, proclaims the highest attainable standard of health as a a human right. And now that's in the kind of main treaty on the subject called the International Covenant for Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And of course, that whole notion never got entrenched and to the extent it did, took a hit under neoliberal conditions. Not because, again, neoliberals opposed basic rights of this kind in principle as because the state they helped design through austerity 
measures was too poor to vindicate the rights, or in the case of a wealthy country like mine, just unwilling to even go there before Bernie Sanders kind of mainstreamed the whole idea that healthcare is a human right. So that's all before the pandemic. As discussed in the prior filming, you know, I think the main thing that the pandemic reveals is that the right to health, which is, I think, much more credible to more people now, is hostage to a state-based world order where you have this obligation ends up being, you know, rich countries take care of rich people with their wealth and poor people have to service their poor with much less money. And the the idea of a global right to health, which would be really challenging because it would mean that rich people like us have obligations to the globally ill, which would affect things like intellectual property law, you know, and and would affect the whole debate about whether Northerners should get boosted before Southerners get a shot. All of that is like way in the future that we see any difference made. But I think that we've seen a kind of graphic revelation of the contrast between this ethical idea, which is gaining traction even before the pandemic and the reality of hierarchy. Yeah. I'd like to move a little bit to this to the notion of democracy. Sure. You had referenced Paul Kahn a few moments ago. I don't pretend to know him very well, but in our conversation, he emphasized that many people give a disproportional amount of attention to the notion of voting when it comes to democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's really significant in a democratic society, as I understand him saying, is civic involvement, civic responsibility, civic participation. And my my question is, to what extent do you think that sense of being a member of a democracy, member of a community, civic participation, is threatened by this notion of inequality? I think hugely. Um, you know, first, let me just comment on the conceptual point and then answer the question directly. So, you know, we can define democracy in various ways. And one of the funny things that's happened in the 20th century is we've come up with complex or fancy theories of democracy that involve a lot of other things than just voting. But we could take an alternative approach and say, no, let's define democracy in terms of majority rule and then say there are other good things in life like rights or like civic involvement. And the fact is you can imagine civic involvement in a non-democratic order where there's no voting sure, and vice versa. You can imagine universal suffrage and even mandatory voting in a place where there's no civic participation. And you can say like Alexis de Tocqueville did and Paul Kahn in his study of his town where he lives that, well, you can't sustain electoral democracy or it goes in scary directions without the culture of civic involvement. But that doesn't mean that civic involvement is democratic. It means it's a condition of democracy. So I'm a little bit suspicious of like the expansion of the concept of democracy to include other good things that Maybe, you know, its conditions may not be because it just muddies the waters in a certain way. 
and it saves us from having to get clear about what our terms mean. I would say equality is one of those conditions that without it, without a, a modicum of it, people will overthrow the system, even if they have a formal vote. And so that's pretty central to my interpretation, not Paul's for sure, of populism, so-called, or Donald Trump or whomever. And you can say, well, that it doesn't make much difference whether we conclude that inequality is inconsistent with democracy because of our notion of democracy or or because it's just a condition that turns out to be crucial to an electoral system that reflects the will of the majority. Either way, it's a serious concern. And so I don't, I don't think like the conceptual definitional work matters much. What should count is that we conclude that as you know, so many have over the centuries, actually, um, that the more inequality you get, the likelier you are that the have-nots overthrow the system. Yeah. And, and just to, to pick up on one aspect that you made, I, I, um, I mean, the, the sheer recognition of the potential dangers of majoritarian rule is something that I think needs to be emphasized and often isn't emphasized enough in an age when people use the word democracy as synonymous with good or morally superior or the right people or what have you. I mean, it's, you you don't have to be a political theorist to recognize that it's logically possible to live in a democratic state where violations of human rights are standard, are the law. You can decide by majoritarian rule that all left-handed people should be executed because you just have a whole lot of right-handed people. Correct. And so that's just, that just logically follows from the structure. And so if you want to create a just society, you have to recognize that and make some kind of structural provisions for it. Correct. I think that's right. I mean, I I would just be a little more tentative about it because I think nowhere in the world has the majority ever ruled. You know, if you take a country like mine, it's constitutionally designed in that you have minority rule practices that are pervasive. And if, if there are rights violations, well, then you can't blame majoritarianism because it hasn't yet been honored. We may find some places where majoritarianism is scary and may, like, let's say, India, although we'd have to check and look in detail at its electoral provisions and arrangements and to see whether that's a myth too. But in principle, you and I agree that voting, even if you define it as the central criterion for what democracy is, doesn't commit you to saying that it's the only important value because it may be that something really valuable turns out to put other things of value under threat, like rights. And if that's true, then we need to figure out what to do. But maybe it's not helpful to say, oh, well, no, democracy presupposes the protection of rights. And so it's actually democratic to abridge democracy. Well, that seems to lead in very unhelpful directions. Rather, I think we should say democracy is good, but there may be other goods. And we need to put them all together and figure out in what way to do so. Right. And I, I guess my point, which was more of a, a theoretical, logical point, rather yeah. than any attempt to, to point to any existing structure, 
is that in order to do that coherently, we have to understand what we mean by democracy, and we can't attribute things to it which logically are completely independent of it. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> no, I just I'm I'm with you against a big kind of tendency in the last 50 years, which is to say, no, well, if you think hard enough about it, democracy requires equal citizenship. And until we have that, we don't have democracy, even if you have universal suffrage. Well, that strikes me as unhelpful because it pretends that there are features of democracy that are actually, you know, justifiable on some other grounds than democratic ones. I'd like to move to the notion of expertise. All right. It seems to me that there are different types of expertise. And maybe this is because I have a, a scientific background. Mm -hmm. But it's not even so much that, I mean, trivially, there are different types of expertise. Different people are expert at, at what they're expert in. So there's a, that's even the most dogmatic person is going to have a hard time arguing with me, I suspect, about that point. But that's not really what I mean. What I mean is that when the word expertise is invoked, it often means different things, and certainly in a political context. And so specifically, I'm referring to your take on the notion of expertise in, again, this essay, which maybe I'm the only person who read it very carefully, uh, <laughs> the, the, the irrelevance of the pandemic. So you're contrasting to some extent some aspects of, of our contemporary democratic systems with the technocracy. And you're looking at the pandemic perhaps as a test case of, well, do the experts do their job properly? Was This was an opportunity for expertise to rear its head, as it were, and, and really be involved in public policy in a very, very big way. And to what extent were they successful and to what extent were they unsuccessful? And so specifically, you're you're alluding to people like epidemiologists who are saying, here are our models, and this is, this is what we predict, and, and then the public policy, which springs from that. And that's a very tendentious topic, and it seems very analogous. Epidemiologists on the whole seem very analogous to economists uh, in terms of their models and their, their ability to predict the past with 100% accuracy and their inability to predict the future mm -hmm. and all, all the rest of that. So there's that type of expertise, this sort of technocratic expertise. But then there's the expertise of scientific expertise, the people that are, that are taking to the streets because they think that there's no particular reason for them to believe that the vaccine will actually be effective or that the immunologists have the slightest idea what they're doing when they're creating these sorts of products, or for that matter, that they know better about what's happening in terms of climate change than a, than a climate scientist because... Mm -hmm you know, it didn't rain last summer or, or, yeah. or, or whatever they want to say. So it seems to me that it's worth teasing out this notion of expertise because it has different political ramifications. So my first question is, is that, does that resonate with you? Do you think that it, it's, uh, that it's a multi-layered term and means different things depending on what context you're dealing with? Absolutely. And I just agree. I think we need to return to and minimally distinguish between the scientific ethic, which is epistemologically fallibilist and modest, and insists that different sciences are differently good at different things, you know, based on their own advancement and the nature of the subject matter, like, you know, meteorology, we may just have much less that we can ultimately know because we're dealing with an inherently more unpredictable system 
And then we need to distinguish that, you know, which I think is is really kind of common sense, everything I've said to actual scientists from technocracy, which could bring science to bear on policy, but also kind of abandon some of its fallibilism and modesty. And we can debate whether that happened in the pandemic. We also should add, and I just, this is pretty central to me, that there are various pseudosciences, like I would think economics falls in this category, that kind of claim the epistemological credentials of, of, of natural science but are much less, you know, reliable even than meteorology. Oh, I would go stronger than that. I'd just say yeah. they're unreliable. Yeah, maybe they're unreliable. <laughs> and yet they get invested technocratically with huge political significance. And just to add to my piece that you're discussing, I read a New Yorker interview with Michael Sandel the other day that kind of I think perfectly encapsulates what I was trying to say when he remarks what happened politically these are Michael Sandel's words, is that the economist discredited expertise for the last three or four decades, and then came the pandemic, and suddenly the experts of relevance were no longer the economists. And, you know, I think that's, that's a brilliant insight into how expertise has functioned in our time, in part because of technocratic optimism, but also different people namely economists getting a lot of political authority in the run-up to the pandemic and the backlash affecting technocracy as such and expertise in general. Well, it's a good thing this isn't journalism, because if it were journalism, I would be pilloried for, for saying something sycophantic like, I agree with every single thing that you've said, but... Uh, <laughs> But I agree with every single thing that you've said, so that, that's just all there is to it. Okay. Let me add uh, something else and get your, get your views on rather than just being sycophantic. There are aspects of this notion of expertise and this notion of authority that drive me crazy from, let's just say, the left, particularly in, in, in America. And let me try mm -hmm. to delineate what I mean by that. So clearly, I'm not sympathetic to people who are rabid anti-vaxxers or what have you. I don't, sure. I don't want to even deal with that. But there is this sanctimonious and sententious phrase that, that has been thrown around a lot in the, in the last couple of years that drives me completely crazy, which is trust the science. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's not that I, I distrust science or it's not that I'm opposed to the practices of science, quite the contrary. But the implication seems to be you're going to be presented with two points of view, because that's the way that everything seems to work in this day and age. You always, mm -hmm. no matter what your point of view is, you, you have somebody on one side and somebody on the other side. Mm -hmm. And the person that wants to uh, associate himself with scientific interests is the one to be trusted. That, that's my interpretation of this, which is, which, which is uh, incredibly not even wrong, as, as Wolfgang Pauli famously said, because that, that's a misperception of what the whole process of science is all about. Mm -hmm. What you should be trusting, it's not nearly as good a phrase, or what you should be convinced of, or, or, or where you, you should be willing to bet the house, is in the process of science. This is the process of open, rational inquiry, which is not actually limited to science per se, but is, is as you say, it's a uh, it, it, it's, a, it's an epistemological attempt at trying to grapple with the world around us. 
insofar as we're trusting anything, that's what it is that we're trusting. Right. And then we're also assuming that we don't live in a world where the people who engage in this these epistemological inquiries are perversely out to deceive us. Right. Uh, which is not really so much a question of trust, but a question of a lack of paranoia. Yeah, and that's that's what that's what we're doing because once you start talking about trusting these guys, you, the implication is it's a matter of faith. Yeah, and you're you're contrasting your faith in Party A over Party B, and I think that's a gross and 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 disastrous misrepresentation of what the whole pursuit of rational inquiry that led to things like the vaccine, but lots of other things is all about. Well, I mean, now I'm in position of being sycophantic because that was very eloquent and well-formulated. I mean, you know, trust the science is itself an unscientific slogan because as we've said, science is domain specific and it's fallibilist and modest. And I think what the slogan meant in effect was trust the technocrats, which is a very different proposition. And I don't think we should do it. And as Sandel observes, and I would extend, you know, it's not just that economists kind of invalidated technocracy over decades, but in what I've written about more recently in kind of foreign policy, the so-called blob the Beltway experts did too. And American voters have been in rebellion as a result, but they're not revolting against science so much as this command to submit to technocrats. And sadly, science has gotten swept into this this revolt, but that's the technocrats' fault in the first instance for arrogating the authority of science, which it never claimed, which was this fallibilist and modest and domain-specific authority. Okay, so let me step in and try to tackle really big fish, and and let me enunciate some things that that bother me. All right. So there is an awareness among reasonably right-thinking people, prompted by the pandemic, but right-thinking people were, of course, aware of these issues well before the pandemic, a heightened sense of, of awareness of the inequality at a global level, and in particular, the disparity between poor countries not having access to vaccines and, and, and so forth. I live in France, as you know, so you pick up Le Monde and, the, and the, the, the front page is all about the fact that 13% of Africa is vaccinated and whatever it is, 65 to 70% of North America, Europe, and all the rest of that is vaccinated. And this is a disaster. It's a disaster on a moral level. And it's a disaster on a practical level, because uh, even if we are acting through enlightened self-interest, it's not in our interest to have a place on planet Earth where the virus can be circulating and mutating and so forth and so on. Yep. So, of course, I agree with that. But it makes me wonder. There are lots of questions that never get asked, at least to my satisfaction. And this brings me back to, to what I was saying earlier about my perception of the free trade philosophy and trying to eliminate inequality on a global scale. Okay. So I I ask myself, why is, by and large, why is a place like Africa so incredibly poor still in 2022? Yeah. And yes, it's true, obviously, that there are many, many parts of the world that are terribly impoverished. 
and Africa is, of course, not the. I'm not being anti-African. It's not the only place in the world by any stretch of the imagination. Just why is the poor? Why is there so much inequality on a global level? And I think to really, in good conscience, address that question, you don't start off by just having this view of, well, we have to give more vaccines, or it's somehow up to big pharma to be able to to step in. And big pharma. I mean, if 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 our solutions to global inequality are left up to big pharma, we're all in big trouble. Of course. So I think to myself, why don't we spend a little bit more time asking this question, which would involve things like, to what extent has 50 years or 70 years or however long it's been of continuous international aid been successful? To what extent has it been unsuccessful? What countries in the past 50 or 70 years have been able to rise above their terrible levels of poverty and actually become relatively wealthy countries? And how have they done that? It's infuriating to me as a complete bystander to the whole process because the key questions aren't asked. It seems like they're sort of asked with this under the guise of this distributing vaccine type of argument, mm-hmm. but they're really sidestepped. So nobody's really asking, it seems to me, the very difficult questions that would lead to a sense of genuine progress, genuinely more equitable or prosperous society on a global scale. So, okay. So I'm, again, I'm no, great. on, but, but, no, it's but a great question. Oh, okay. So first, I don't think anyone is saying that big pharma is responsible for, sure. you know, global <laughs> equality since all, all that's being required is that it, it make the vaccine available on fairer terms and not rely on intellectual property protection. And again, that would be could potentially be an argument that you make in in human rights terms, but that would be on sufficiency grounds, not right. intersecting equality at all. Okay, but let, let me just jump in for a second. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna turn it back to you. But to me this is there's a certain sense of condescension in all of this. Because to me, we're really going to be making progress when we don't need you know, Pfizer or Moderna or, sure. or BioNTech or whatever it is, when sure. we have lots of local capacities in Agreed. Africa, in Indonesia, in all these other places. So I, sure, as a stopgap measure, as a way of moving forwards, that's obviously necessary, but yeah, we've yeah, been doing stopgap measures agree. for 70 years. Like, when, when sure. are these things actually really going to start happening? And what's stopping well, so them great. from actually systemically happening? So that's a great... So for, like, so on your main question, first we have to ask compared to what? Because, you know, according to the World Bank, inflation-adjusted per capita income in sub-Saharan Africa has increased 14-fold in that time period. The trouble is that the same figure in much of the global north is 20-fold. And so it's not that Africans on average aren't better off. It's that the inequality baked into the world prior to decolonization has increased uh, with some asterisks lately. And I think then you need like an account over time because you have to explain the so-called great divergence. That's to say, how did the rich get rich on the global scale? What was the relation of imperial rule to it? Why did, as I argue, and not enough, I mean, no one argues otherwise, why did decolonization worsen global inequality for the first 20 years? So 
again, the new states, including of, of sub-Saharan Africa, got free and their former imperial masters exacerbated their historic gains. So all of that is relevant background, and I don't have a particularly strong view except that we might conclude, well, the reasons for it are really important to ponder ethically, but even if it was completely their fault that peoples of the now post-colonial world are poor relative to us, even if they're better off than 50 years ago, we might still have an ethical obligation. We'd have to figure out what our ethics are. And it doesn't follow that if there is an ethical obligation, that it's kind of about building local capacity to be rich because the globe is now interdependent, always was. That's what empire was about. But you can't argue that like anyone doing anything anywhere in a capitalist system is kind of outside and doing something purely locally because there's a world market and there's, you know, trade and investment. And so I think we have to decide, are we on the hook for the state of inequality in the world? And if we are, in what way? Because there's the whole world system to be designed or redesigned. And we talked earlier about how neoliberals took power at the global level very successfully in investment and trade regimes and in international financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund. And we would need to figure out if we think that we could do better than they did, what we would do. And so I, I think development is not that impressive yeah. over the last you know, several decades. And it's not that it has made no difference and foreign aid has been minuscule, but made some minor difference. But the holy grail would be a theory of a world system, since that's what we're living in, of production, distribution, exchange, and consumption that would end up being more fair to more people. Yeah, that's hard to disagree with. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to conclude with a personal question. Okay. Which you're probably not expecting, (laughs) but uh, we'll see. So my understanding is that you were trained as an intellectual historian. Correct. And I wonder if the aspect of historical research going after large-scale themes and looking at their implications and ripples and consequences throughout long periods of time, it seems to me that that type of intellectual activity is quite different than much of the sorts of work that you're doing now. Yeah. Personally, again, at the risk of being sycophantic, I think it's very valuable what you're doing. I think it's very important what you're doing. I think the sorts of questions that you are asking are all too often not even addressed, let alone answered. And so it's, um, I'm very pleased to be living in a world where people such as yourself are raising such questions. But I can imagine if I were you, there would be times when I think to myself, what the heck do I need all this nonsense for? I would like to retreat into the 18th century or the 17th century or, the, or, or whatever. And I would like to delve into great thinkers whom I haven't had the opportunity to contemplate sufficiently instead of dealing with the crap that's coming out on Fox News uh, today. 
So, so my question is, do you ever have such quandaries? And if so, how do you deal with them? Absolutely. I mean, you know, in broad strokes, my career started out in one place and has ended up in another. And of course, I'm very often nostalgic about what it would have been like had I not moved into law schools or ended up writing about human rights policy and law. And in self-defense or for my own rationalizing, I have indulged in the thought that in all of my projects, I'm still doing what I trained to do just at a slightly different register. And my books have been rarely celebrated and often denounced as intellectual histories of global politics. I don't think they are, since I don't think there have been that many great thinkers addressing the topics I've ended up writing about lately, human rights, war, etc. But I've tried. And for example, I'd make Leo Tolstoy the hero of my latest book, which allows me to indulge some old interests and skills in writing about individual authors. And right now I'm I'm preparing to give these lectures on Cold War liberalism in Oxford in this winter, if the pandemic permits. And there's no law in it at all. And it's just about the mid-20th century thinkers that I originally specialized in writing about. So the hope is that when you make big choices in your career, which I largely did for personal reasons and because opportunities presented themselves, it's not definitive and you can always change your mind or mix it up or return to your roots. And every time you make a choice, you're making a bet that what you're doing is better than the alternative. And you know, often you're wrong because you were, were making hundreds of choices like that over a career and a lot of them have to be wrong. And so that's the bar. And, you know, if you nonetheless do some good work over time and it's meaningful to you, I think you can be luckier than most human beings have been. Sure. And I, I, certainly, I, I, I certainly didn't mean it to come across as an accusation in the slightest. Oh, no, uh, I, it just, I was just trying to imagine what it would be like. Right. Sam, I've had a wonderful time talking to you. Likewise. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Is there something uh, that we've elided or or we haven't emphasized enough? No, likewise. Thanks for your questions once again. I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details. Thank you.